This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. I'm Bethany Frankel, creator of the Skinny Girl brand, media personality, and entrepreneur. I'm Barbara Corcoran, real estate mogul, shark investor on ABC's Shark Tank, and I also started a company named The Corcoran Group. I'm Katia Beecham, co-founder and CEO of Birchbox, and I'm a West Texas native. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. Now, Veronica Dagger. Welcome to The Wall Street Journal's Secrets of Wealthy Women podcast, a look at powerful female leaders and the secrets to their success. On this episode, we highlight the self-made women entrepreneurs who created their own empires. Bethany Frankel, Barbara Corcoran, and Katia Beecham each beat the odds to see their visions turned into multi-million dollar success stories. We'll hear about how they kept their drive to succeed and what it takes to keep a successful empire at the top. Bethany Frankel is a reality television star best known for her role on Broadway. The Real Housewives of New York City. She's also an entrepreneur and sold the Skinny Girl Margarita brand for a reported $125 million. She continues to license the Skinny Girl brand, which can be found on a variety of snacks and treats. With a contentious divorce behind her and a growing empire, she's ready for the next chapter. So, Bethany, early in your career, you worked as a nanny for the rich and famous. What did you learn from that experience? I wasn't a full-service nanny. I, I drove Paris and Nikki Hilton to and from school and ice skating, after-school activities, the mall. And I worked for their mom, Kathy Hilton, in her store, wrapping presents and selling ornaments and fancy tchotchkes in West Hollywood. It was a gig. It wasn't like I was amazing with kids or had ever had any experience before that, but it was just uh, an interesting gig. I met them through... Kyle at a restaurant called La Scala, where I was also a hostess at the same time. It was a job. They weren't Paris and Nikki Hilton yet. So they were my friend Kyle's young, beautiful nieces. They eventually evolved into being Paris and Nikki, which was not surprising because they were alluring and stunning, but still, wow. Look at those are the little girls I used to drive to school. Did you see their lifestyle and say, oh, this is what I want? No. I'm not a person that really thinks about lifestyle. I do. There's a man named Breck Costin that I took this course with who once said, you can make a lifestyle out of a life, but you can't make a life out of a lifestyle. I just, I'm, I'm a person who's focusing more on being personally happy than what other people think is my happiness. Makes sense. So you tried to break through for a while. So I'm just wondering, how did you keep going despite some setbacks? Life is about setbacks. I mean, everyone has setbacks. If you get set back by setbacks, then you're not going to succeed. It's just part of the path. You know, it doesn't matter what you do. There are always going to be setbacks. So you just sort of take a deep breath, brush yourself off, pick yourself up, and keep it going. So I was going to say, what advice do you have for women who are looking for their big break, but they haven't yet, yet got it, and they might feel a little uh, frustrated by that? You're not going to get your break. You're going to make your break happen. Things don't happen. Success doesn't happen to people. People, you know, happen to success. Like, you just have to make it happen. And you can't just keep hitting the same note over and over. You have to try different ways and find your way in. I mean, there are you, you do have to eventually give up if, if you really in your gut know that it's not going to work versus ego. I mean, I've had times in my life where ego's been involved and I didn't want to give up. But you do need to know when to hold them and when to fold them, when it's time to pack it up. 
and then try something new. I mean, I've had so many different businesses and they were definitely not successful and I've had so many failures. So you learn more from your failures than you do your successes. Not everybody's going to end up being a billionaire. You look at the numbers, it's not going to happen. But, you know, life takes you on a unique journey and you end up finding yourself in places you never imagined you'd be. You went on Housewives exclusively for business reasons, I heard. Where did you get the foresight to do that? Yes, I went on Housewives for business reasons, but I didn't think of myself as the business person that I would become. I went on Housewives because I wanted, I was a natural food chef and I wanted to eventually have a cooking show. I, I chose to do Housewives instead of a possible show on the Food Network because, oh no, that's not even true. That's right, the Food Network, the Food Network, the president of the Food Network at the time told me not to bother talking to all the production companies that I was never going to make it. It was never going to happen. But I wanted to have a show on the Food Network. That was sort of the ultimate goal, just to be a successful natural food chef. So I thought by being on The Housewives, if it was a disaster and didn't work, no one would know. And if it was a success that I had a shot at showing people that I was a natural food chef. But I definitely overshot the mark. I didn't think, I couldn't have even imagine that I would have the life that I have now or the success that I've had. What did you say to that person when they said, oh, you're never going to make it? I didn't really say much. Like I just, you know, when you, it's the, the head of a network telling you, it's not happening. I'm not a burn. I'm not a bridge burner. I'm not really bitter. But you know, a lot of people didn't believe in me, and they were probably right at the time. I, I, I part of it's luck. You know, it doesn't. I wasn't definitely going to succeed. Now, in retrospect, I mean, some of those people wish they had thought differently. But it could have been luck, or just it just worked out for me. You can go. There's no way to pick every single horse that's going to win. Did you ever doubt yourself? I've definitely doubted myself a lot. Like, I never. I always had a positive attitude, and I thought I had something unique. But now it's easy to say that you knew you had something and you knew you'd be successful. You can't now. If you're broke and alone and have no one to really turn to and no, no safety net, which I never had, and, uh, you know, there's only one way to go. And I thought something would happen. I never imagined that it would be this, this incredible. And it's really once the match lights that you then have a chance to really do interesting things because people believe in you and then you get greater opportunities. The falls you take are greater once you've had a success because people are either waiting for you to fall or expecting so much of you. But I definitely had doubts. And I was in my mid to late thir- – I was in my late 30s when I became successful. So that's a little scary. I'm not married. I don't have a child. I don't have any money. I, you know, really don't know what I'm going to be doing. Am I going to be a bartender? Am I, you know, what am I doing? So and I, I remember I was going to be um, whatever the lowest thing is in the kitchen for uh, Bobby Flay at one of his restaurants because I knew him from back in the day. But I was trying to be a natural food chef with a television career at the same time. But I didn't want to work in his kitchen and be like, oh, I'm also a TV chef, but I'm working, you know, as the lowest on, you know, on the line in Bobby's uh, restaurant. So in your late 30s, it's an interesting time to be sort of starting out. What advice of women who are in that same situation? Get on the road, you know, get on the road and, and buckle up and bring a roadmap. You're not going to follow most of it, but at least it's nice to know that you have the safety of having a map in the car. The trip will not go the way that you envisioned it to be. And uh, no, be honest with yourself. Not every, I had a discussion with somebody on Shark Tank about this exact thing. Not everyone's an entrepreneur. People can be amazing workers and can be very successful and make six and seven figure salaries, but still not want to be a lone wolf and like a Mustang, you know, ride or die. You may want to have the comfort of the 401k and an office structure and a nine to six and two weeks paid vacation and things like that. 
the other way too. Not everybody, I can't work in an office environment with that sort of hierarchy. It just doesn't work for me. But you have to be honest with yourself about who you really are and what the possibilities really are and not just see something that sounds good and think you can be that, you know? How intentional were you about building your personal brand? Not at all. I mean, I don't know if I, I don't even ever think about that. I, the word brand is so overused and people saying it's my personal brand. It's just, I, I think kind of that kind of talks a little like, like jargon, sort of pretentious a little. You know what I mean? It's like, let's circle back and run it up the flagpole and say all these big words and maybe it'll add up to something. I don't really think like that. I mean, I'm, I, I bet I have, I know I have a personal brand and I know that there are things that I want to do and don't want to do and things that I say that I regret, but I don't really think like that. You have a marketing strategy for yourself? For myself, I think I do, but it's not something. I write down or plan out. It's something that you just innately know. It's like you know that you want to get up and wash your face and get your kids to school on time and it's sort of like a loose plan. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I was going to say when I'm on Shark Tank, people probably think I'm going to throw a glass of Chardonnay on them and curse them out. And I don't do that because it's not that environment. But I don't think about it. It's just what happens. I'm in a different environment. We're talking about business and entrepreneurs. We're not, you know, wasted with hilarious wigs on you know, talking about nonsense. You said liquor is traditionally a man's business. How did you get the guys to listen to you? It's the same thing with the Puerto Rico relief is the same as the liquor business. It's not nobody wants to help you or partner with you. You just need kind of one person to get it started. So no, the men didn't listen to me until the dollar sign started rolling and until it was the fastest growing liquor brand in, in history at the time. One man who had been in the liquor business, his name is David Cambar. He had a fam- he had have family in the liquor business. And I just, someone said to him the name of the idea and the concept, he sort of got it. And that's another thing. People have to get it. You can't be like shoving things down people's throats. They have to ask you seven times what the idea is. What does it mean again? For me, I think things should be pretty clear cut and understandable. And he sort of just got it. So it was one man. But then once we were successful, the whole entire liquor business, every company shifted to market towards women because wine was always marketed to women, but really liquor wasn't. So after Skinny Girl, everybody sort of shifted. One thing I notice about you is that you're a really hard worker and you've got this hustling spirit. You're always hustling for your business. Where do you get that from? And what advice do you have for other women who want to develop that same ethic? Um, you know, I, you could say it's innate, but it is also it also also very learned. I mean, some people are just sluggish and don't have it. And they know who they are and I know who they are. And other people are just not focused. I was talking about this earlier. My business has gone to a different level with different types of employees, like people that I have a real president that's like, you know, a serious businessman now. And I'm hiring different people to work for me that are more of like professional assistants versus young girls that I've sort of taught this game. Because I, you know, I always have just hired people. It doesn't matter what your resume is. It matters what your attitude is, which, which still is still part of the culture. But I've taught them how to be organized and how to delegate and how to be stronger and how to prioritize. So you can, you can teach that. You can't be, you can't just be uh, talking loudly and bossing people around doesn't mean that you have that drive. You get that drive when you feel like you're organized, things are teed up and lined up and you have your act together. Like if you feel like you have your act together, you can be very efficient. You got to work smart. It's not how many hours you work, it's how you work. It's how you use your time. You just know whether you're scatterbrain or whether you're focused. I cannot tell you how being organized is so crucial in everything. Your house, your closet, your kitchen drawer, your cosmetic drawers, your your schedule and to look at the board, not just the pieces. I say to the girls that work with me, don't look at the 
pieces. And I make that mistake sometimes. Look at the whole board. You know, someone comes to you with one little stupid thing that's not important about what you should be doing. You're like, no, why? I'm not doing that. I can't do that. Look at the rest of the whole, look at the whole chessboard. Look at everything. Would you want your daughter to go into reality TV? No, I would not want my daughter to go into reality TV. There's no reason. I don't understand why, like, wealthy people that already have just are hanging out getting facials want to be on reality TV. It's just to expose yourself to scrutiny. And, and unnecessary drama. I actually now love it because it's funny. And to me, it's really become the ultimate satire and comedy. And I've really developed a great relationship with reality TV in my life. Otherwise, no. I, let her be free-spirited and just amazing. And you don't, she doesn't need to be doing this. But, you know, I'm a pro. I've been doing this for a long time. And I, you know, Andy says you were born to do this. I don't know whether it's a compliment or an insult. But, I, you know, I, I, this is one very bizarre thing that I'm a natural at. Coming up, more success stories from the most powerful women entrepreneurs who created their own empires. This is the Wall Street Journal's Secrets of Wealthy Women podcast. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. The future of everything from the Wall Street Journal. Technology and superstorms. Digital money. What's next for retail? and fighting superbugs. Join me, Jennifer Strong, as I examine how science and technology are influencing our lives today, tomorrow, and beyond. The Future of Everything from The Wall Street Journal, Season 2. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. Birchbox co-founder and CEO Katia Beecham came from a modest background in El Paso, Texas. Today, she's known for leading Birchbox to become a global business, which continues to expand worldwide. She now runs a profitable company with more than 2.5 million active customers. And she's also passionate about supporting aspiring female leaders and says that she feels a sense of responsibility to create an army of women in the workplace who are confident enough to ask for what they need need. So Katya, when did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? The truth is I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur when I went to business school because before business school, I really didn't understand or know what entrepreneurship was. In my mind, you know, lawyers, doctors owned their own businesses or engineers and technologists. I'm from El Paso, Texas. I wasn't surrounded with that as a concept of a career. So I, you know, like a very well-behaved young lady, I went into finance and then decided I would go to business school, most likely get back into finance of some kind. And in business school, I was exposed to entrepreneurship and basically my whole world changed. So what did you learn from those entrepreneurs that you interacted with at school? You know, I will say that the first real moment that I thought about being an entrepreneur was in class. Not that necessarily they're all entrepreneurs in business school, but the professor teaching the entrepreneurship class, he just changed my whole perspective because what I felt I was missing in my career was, frankly, the opportunity to meet myself. I wanted to know what I was capable of and what I was made of. And I was, you 
you know, 25, 26, 27. And I felt that I wasn't being pushed or asked to really give my entire capability in my work. I was progressing well and felt I had so much more to give. So when I was exposed to entrepreneurship in school, I realized you can't hide as an entrepreneur. This is going to be the opportunity to really know what I'm capable of. And frankly, all of the ups and downs that they presented, because they actually, I would call it, were discouraging of entrepreneurship in the sense that they really said, from a reality perspective, almost all of these fail. I realized I was just leaning into that so much and thinking, that is the life I want to live. I want to actually try so hard and know what's possible when I try that hard. You started Birchbox when you were at Harvard Business School. Did you have trouble getting guys or future investors to take you seriously because you were two young women at the time. You're still a young woman. <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to think so. So I will tell you two things. One is I didn't realize it at first. I was definitely not tuned in to the fact that being a woman was making things harder because, frankly, I had gone to Vassar undergrad where women were dominant. I had been successful in finance. I was at Harvard. There were plenty of dominant women there. And I wasn't in the mindset that there should be any reason why that would be a challenge given that I was starting a company geared towards a female consumer and had an insight that came from being that consumer, right, as a woman. So I didn't think this is going to make it inherently hard. What I did realize over time was the fact that absolutely we were being treated differently. And the way that it felt was no matter how no matter how well we were able to articulate the massive scale we had achieved on very little paid in capital with, you know, just a few years, and no matter how we tried to show our metrics, all of our KPIs, and just how outstanding this business was, we felt that it was very hard for many male investors to hear it. I felt that when I was there, they heard that I was a woman who liked makeup. And I I didn't know how to say this. Well, first of all, I don't like makeup. Um, second of all, I just it was confounding. I couldn't believe that we were having such a serious conversation about a $500 billion industry that hadn't been disrupted since Sephora disrupted it 20 years ago. Opportune time, right? You know, nothing had really been challenged about this industry for decades. And I couldn't believe that they couldn't hear what this was. And they would just keep boiling it back to, well, my wife doesn't use makeup. Or, you know, I, you know, my daughter tried this and didn't like it. Or my daughter tried this and she loved it. And that those little things like swaying their view on this investment thesis, whereas we were saying, you know, we have reached our five-year revenue target in seven months. We have millions of subscribers before we even, you know, could have imagined we're outpacing the size of, like, major magazine circulation at this point. And, by the way, we're getting people to completely change their behavior and pay for something that was formerly free. So if you think about what Birchbox is from an e-commerce perspective, we are an e-commerce company that gets the customer to pay us to be acquired. I mean, that should have been drop the mic right? Also, we were growing phenomenally well. Also, we had incredible unit economics, but it was. It was really hard to kind of break through and, and to get people to hear what I think is so exciting about our company. How did you get some of those guys in the beginning to get it? So in the beginning, I'd say you know, we found the right people. Again, I think it was before I really recognized that there was this challenge to being a woman pitching a female-oriented company. And we found investors, some of whom were a woman. So we found Teresa Gao from Excel, but now she has obviously her own fund. And she was at Excel at the time. She was a woman. We didn't even have to get to page five of like a 50-page deck with Teresa. Page like four, she was like in. So in, I get this. This is the future. And then we met Finn Barnes from First Round Capital, and he had been involved with businesses that had women as like the target 
and customer, he spent a, just he spent a ton of time. I mean, I will give him so much credit for that. It's just really getting in our heads. What was this insight and understanding it and getting excited about it? Those two were early. There were our first two investors in, as well as a whole group of other angel investors like Kirsten Green and Gary Vaynerchuk, Michael Deering from Harrison Metal, all of these incredible people that they just took the time to learn more and they spent time with us. So it just was a matter, I think, of they weren't looking at it as these two girls who were excited about a makeup company. They recognized that we were serious business students that found an arbitrage opportunity where we noticed that there was just it was a ripe opportunity and beauty that this was clearly a category that was lagging all of the other categories in terms of online penetration and somebody was going to figure this out and the recipe that we had tried while at business school because we did a small test it seemed really interesting because we had hundreds of women and then over a thousand people sign up for a wait list that were willing to pay for samples samples do you think it's gotten easier for female entrepreneurs in the years that you've been at it? I think it's an interesting question because there there are more female entrepreneurs today, and but there are more people trying to pitch companies. And yes, there's more. There are more seed stage and early stage funds, some of which target or have you know the idea that they want to focus on female led companies. But there is just a lot more noise. And for as much as there is more female entrepreneurs for sure today, and more people trying to pitch, there have also been more I think failures, and more people can point to that too because obviously the economy goes up and down and men and women have success and failures, but I don't think there's this new huge momentum, unfortunately, still. How can women know if they're entrepreneurs or not? That's such a great question. So I think that one of the key most important aspects of being an entrepreneur, being somebody who wants to be an entrepreneur, is being somebody who is attracted to being extremely uncomfortable. So you have to be very interested in the fact that you're never going to feel settled and hopefully see that as you know, meaning that you're you're really learning, you're constantly developing, you're stretching all the time. That's the implications of always feeling uncomfortable. But I think if you're somebody that's okay with uncertainty, if you're somebody that is constantly feeling like, you know, you're punching above your weight, you're stretching, you want to feel that. And every time you get to that next level, you're stretching again. I think it's a really good sign that you're not, that that, that uncertainty, that that kind of uncomfortableness doesn't get you down, that it kind of feeds you instead of makes you feel like wary or cautious. So even when your company's hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, you still can feel uncomfortable. You never, I mean, I think, I actually think this is my biggest epiphany as a person, as somebody in my career, is that it's actually the point to never feel comfortable because it means that you are always pushing and striving and learning because that is how you stay relevant as a leader. I mean, if you're lucky enough to be in a situation where you're company's scaling or your company's growing really quickly, then you your job is changing materially every few months. Every six months is a little longest you feel like you're in a job, right? It's changing so much. So by the time you get kind of good at your job, it's on to the next job. <laughs> you know, it's different again and you have to have new skills again. So you that becomes just kind of this cycle, this treadmill that you're on and you have to think that that is incredible. I have been talking to the, my team a lot about this, but I realize that a lot of us think that the way of, you know, approaching a challenge or thinking about our careers is that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You like work really hard, there's a tunnel, and then there's like a light at the end. And I realize that I actually think that the game of it and the point of it is to be really good and happy in the tunnel because because there's just always the new challenge. You know, there's always a new thing to fight for. And you have to be able to find happiness and joy 
in the tunnel, in the journey, in the darkness, and not just live for the light because there is light. And I don't want to say that there's not, but as most entrepreneurs will tell you, that light always feels so short-lived because you always know there's so much more you want to do. There's so much more. Like you're, you always feel like you're just getting started and it's a great feeling, but it means that you're never really basking in the light. You're always moving forward. Isn't that exhausting, you know, always <laughs> fighting, so to speak? Th- that's what it comes down to. You asked, you know, how do you know? And I think if you, if that doesn't exhaust you, if that invigorates you, if that makes you feel alive and it makes you feel like that's the life you want to live, that's the, that's the feeling I had when I was learning about entrepreneurship. I think they were trying to tell me in school, this is exhausting. Most people fail. And I was like, this sounds amazing because I want, I just want to put my whole self out there and I want to grow and I want to develop and I want to do as much as I can, you know, for myself, for the world. I want to leave a mark. You know, that motivated me instead of making me feel like this is going to be exhausting. But it's a lot of work. And I always say that if anybody knew what it was, I don't think you would choose it. Spend time with Alexa? Then make What's News part of your flash briefing on the Amazon Echo, the Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. Barbara Corcoran is a businesswoman, investor, consultant, and television personality, best known for being a shark investor on ABC's Shark Tank. At 23, Barbara borrowed $1,000 and quit her job as a waitress to start a real estate company in New York City. Over the next quarter century, she turned that loan into a $5 billion real estate business, the Corcoran Group. Barbara is also a motivational and inspirational speaker and author of the bestseller, Shark Tales, How I Turned $1,000 into a Billion-Dollar Business. So, Barbara, you were very young when you started your own company, and that was really unusual for women at that time. So I'm just wondering how you got the courage to do that. Well, actually, it takes a lot less courage to start young because, as you know, when you're young, you're too stupid to know any better. You've never fallen off a bridge, hit your head. You don't know what to expect. So I was dumb and happy and naive. And it's really the best time to start any business. What's your advice for women who are thinking that their life just isn't enough? They want something more out of that? Because I've heard you talk about that in past interviews, that you just wanted something more for yourself. So what would you say to them? Well, I would say if you're not happy with what you're doing, and I don't mean 100% happy, but 95% happy, where you get up in the morning, put your feet on the floor, and you're excited to go to work, you ought to change it. I mean, why would you waste another year of your life doing something that isn't totally fulfilling? Uh, what stands in most people's way is fear and analysis. I think when you analyze things to death, you always come up with the rightful conclusion that you shouldn't change. <laughs> That's it. And it's the wrong conclusion because you're not listening to your spirit and your heart when you're getting up in the morning. I say change. And of course, I'm an advocate of women and anyone actually who can walk and talk should be starting their own business. Like, why would you want to work for someone else if you could work for yourself? For me, that just seems like, uh, why would I even think of that? So if you're thinking of starting your own business, the best time to do when young and stupid get there out there. You don't want to die saying, I wish I should have, could have. The, the saddest people I know are those kinds of people. How do you tune into that gut feeling within you? You pay attention to it, number one, and actually rate your gut feeling much higher than your intellect. I think we're all uh, in a society where people put trem- 
tremendous importance on uh, analysis, uh, logical thinking. And yet that's the least important thinking in life. When anybody looks back at their life and thinks about anything that's the high point in their life, it was always a knee-jerk reaction, a gut reaction. It wasn't plotted out and planned meticulously with the right credentials, the right education. It was always the stuff where you followed your heart, whether it be personal matters or business. It's all the same. So I think you just have to learn that the best instinct is your own instinct. What about that whole idea of risk-taking, though? Because some women will be like, you know, I have so much to lose. Maybe I am a little bit more established. I'm afraid to take the risk. Well, almost anyone who's been working more than two or three years is at risk because they've already started their path toward greatness on a certain path, uh, uh, building up uh, the the credits under your belt and the experience. So, of course, if you're going to make a change in your life, you're always at risk and there's always more to lose than to gain on first blush. But once you get into it, it doesn't take long before you realize, oh, God, I'm making half the money I made, but I can see the light at that end of the tunnel. I can't believe I'm not doing this. I can't believe I'm doing this. And you start to see the rhyme and the rhythm of the whole thing and why it was the best decision you made. You were very, and you still are, very successful in a male-dominated field. How were you able to do that? Well, you know, I never see myself as a woman at work. I just ignored the fact I was a female. I saw my competitors as exactly that. They were my competitors. They all had suits on, uh, but I didn't think, oh, well, they're men and I'm a woman. I never had those thoughts. I thought, they're my competitors and I'm coming to get it. (laughs) It's as simple as that. And uh, lucky for me, I wanted it more badly than any of my male counterparts. I wanted success a lot more badly. I was more needy and lucky for me, I was a poor kid. I wasn't inheriting anything from my dad or that dad before them. And so I really had less to lose, if you want. I could go at it 150%. What's the worst that was going to happen? I was going to be poor again? Well, that wasn't so bad. I was happy poor. So the minute you, as a woman or anyone, see you see yourself as a disadvantage, like, oh my God, I'm a girl in a man's world. Okay, uh, I'm up against the big boys. The minute you see yourself as less, you're right. You are less. <laughs> So I chose to ignore that and just see myself as a competitor. What about the, the guys who ignore you or you're in a room, for example, you're the only female voice and you just get talked over? Oh, it happens to me all the time. It happens to me every day I'm on the Shark Tank set. I'm with Lori, who's a woman, and then the rest are guys, and they talk over me all day long. It's the largest thing I struggle with. I have a smaller voice, I'm softer spoken, and I'm polite, which <laughs> gets in your way. But I have to say um, what I've done my whole life in any male dominant situation is I've asked myself, uh, what would a man do? And guess what? My hand goes up in the air. I speak up and I talk over somebody to be heard two, three times until I'm heard. I don't give up on that. And so I think um, that little trick I did very young, what would a man do? Oh, I'll take credit before even the job is done. Hey, there's a good idea. (laughs) Before I get to the top of the mountain, I'll take full credit. Whereas a woman's going to get to the top of the mountain, set up camp, make sure it's decorated. The kids are okay. Everybody's fed. Is everyone happy? And then maybe take part credit. A little different headset. Were you ever worried about being seen as pushy by the guys? Um, No. I was worried at maybe looking sexy. And I tried to look sexy because I thought that was an advantage too. I wore short skirts and bright colored suits because I wanted to be noticed. But pushy? No, I never thought about that. You know, if I was accused of pushy, uh, in which happened in many situations, not among my own staff, because I think, well, maybe I was pushy. Maybe they were afraid to tell me, obviously. They were working for me. So maybe who knows what they said. I don't know. But in uh, in a situation uh, where people accused me of being 
aggressive or overly aggressive, guess what? I ignored it. You know what? You, you take all that stuff inside and internalize it. it. It erodes at your ego and your confidence. You can't afford to. You really need a self-tape deep inside that the minute you start going down that rabbit hole of negative self-talk that you can pull something else out and start talking to yourself like, yeah, man, I'm cool, man. They're lucky to have me. To pump yourself up, you really need that kind of self-tape to just blot out, blot out, I guess is the right word, anybody, anyone else's conversation that they're trying to communicate. How did you become so confident? I'm not confident at all. Nobody's really confident. Just some of us have a better game. Um, I'm confident that I've accomplished a lot, but put me in any situation where it's something new, I'm scared to death like everybody. But what I have learned, my secret sauce is my insecurity. Because I'm insecure about going into anything new, I grossly overprepare. I overprepare and overprepare because I'll tell you what is a great alternate for real confidence is overpreparation. You overprepare for something, go up against anyone, and uh, what they're going to see is a confident person. You're going to fool them every time. And after you start talking with the confidence of knowing you're overprepared, guess what? You actually start to almost feel confident. Did you ever deal with any sexual harassment? Well, yes, of course, but I didn't honestly choose to see it that way. I had uh, 22 jobs before I started my brokerage firm at 23. So I had 23 bosses. I had, um, I guess I'm trying to think, did I have a female boss? I don't think I ever did. Maybe I'm leaving someone out there. Did I have sexual harassment, as you call it? I had men who were flirtatious, okay? Maybe men who were a little inappropriate in their flirtations. But you want to know something? I left it off. I kidded them back. I moved out of the way. I went to went down the hall. And I actually remember on many occasions some very elderly, very successful bosses really hitting on me thinking, good for them that they have the courage, that they think they're actually good looking. These are old guys. So I, I actually saw the humor in the whole thing and moved out of the way. You sold your business in part to focus on your family, from what I understand. Do you think it's not possible for a woman to have a big career and also a, a good family life? No, I think you can have a big career and a, a big family life, um, but it's extremely difficult, extremely difficult. Um, if you're asking me, could I have, well, I'll, I'll, you're not asking, but I'm going to say to you that I could have never built the Corcoran Group if I had, had children. Not a sing- I would have had a, a successful company, but I wouldn't have had a company 1,000 people strong that I could sell for $66 million. I would have had a, a good company that was making me a living, I'm sure. But it's very, very hard. I mean, even now, uh, you know, I'm, I'm – cl- I don't even know what age I am. I'm close to 70. I know I'm in my 60-somethings, okay? Um, but having a 12-year-old at home uh, and it, with all the focus you want to be as a great mother, okay, and running a very busy career is very, very hard, very hard. Uh, but if you had asked me to, 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 oh, by the way, we also want you to build a giant business, I would say as much energy as I have and as single-minded as I can become and hyper-focused, I could have never but what I have learned is to really uh, separate family and business. So when I walk in that door and I'm with my daughter, Kate, my husband, um, I really, I can't honestly say, you know what, I'm lying. I used to be able to say before, before all the emails and the texting that I don't even think of business. But so much is coming at you that you could really just almost live your life at home in, in a general form of suspension waiting for the next interruption which is a horrific way to live a life. You're giving it away as, you li- as you're living it. So I try my best not to do that. Uh, do I do it well? Fairly well compared to most of my friends, but not as well as I like. Time now for your secrets. 
I'm Barbara Corcoran, and my money secret is money is meant to be spent. Don't save it. Don't count it. Just figure out what you could throw it at that could turn into more money. I'm Bethany Frankel. My money secret is that I don't pay retail. I'm Katia Beecham, and my money secret is maximizing those credit card points. Be sure to check back for future episodes featuring women leaders and their success stories. Subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite audio provider. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.